The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I've been talking about mostly the first noble truth in the past few weeks, talking about the truth of dukkha, the truth of usually translated, dukkha is usually translated as suffering. And um, in the past few weeks I've been talking about various aspects of this, the breadth of what dukkha is. I think I talked about that the first, the first week, that it's not simply what we... I mean, suffering is not a great word for this term um, because of the way we hold that term. Um, the, the breadth of what dukkha means is it's, it's, far, it's got far subtler um, shades to the meaning that it, it, uh, it really can mean just the kind of unease or things feeling a little bit off, out of kilter, uh, all the way up through full, complete, uh, devastating loss and pain and sorrow um, that comes with uh, the deeper um, challenges of our lives. So, so talking about the breadth of dukkha and then I talked about how this dukkha can be masked that we um, don't really recognize our suffering as suffering. Um, we, um, you know, we don't see that the way we're engaging, this is one of the fundamental delusions of our, of our existence, that we don't really see that how we're engaging, that this whole practice that we have engaged in practice, it sounds funny to call it that, the practice of wanting and having, this practice that we've been living our lives, uh, we've been practicing wanting since we were born, um, and seeing, recognizing that when we get what we want, there's a little bit of ease or relief or happiness. And so we've mistaken that, uh, that process for being the only way that happiness is possible, that get what I want, that makes me happy. And um, that's a fundamental misunderstanding um, that in large measure, actually, when we get what we want, there is some happiness that, ha- that comes from the getting, but there's also, I think, actually, when we start to look at it and begin to recognize how this dukkha functions in our experience, we really see that, um, in large measure, the reason why getting what we want brings us some sense of relief or happiness is because the wanting goes away. It's not so much the having that brings the sense of ease. It's the not having the wanting anymore. And so this points to another way, another way to, to let go. So this is actually the second noble truth. I haven't talked too much about the second noble truth yet, but these, all, these four noble truths are all intimately intertwined. But this is fundamentally how we misunderstand this suffering, that we think that by, by wanting things and getting things, that that's what will make us happy. But we don't really see that that very wanting is fueling this round of of having to want more so that we can relieve that wanting. So the, you know, another way to um, letting go of this dukkha is through letting go of the wanting. And I'll talk more about that in a few weeks, the the wanting uh, aspect of dukkha, the second noble truth. 
So dukkha can be masked. And then last week I talked about the, there are different kinds of dukkha. And this kind of points to the subtleties that dukkha can have. That uh, there's the, the kind of dukkha that's related to unpleasant experience. Dukkha dukkha. That when there's pain, when there's physical unpleasant sensation, emotional unpleasant experience, when there's unpleasant experience, there is often a reactivity to that. And that the dukkha of those experiences lies mostly in the reactivity, not so much in the unpleasantness of the experience. And then there is the, uh, the dukkha of change, which is typically a response to the change of pleasant experience. When there's pleasant experience in our lives, we like that, we want to have that, but because things are impermanent, that is destined to go away. And if we're holding on to that pleasant experience, thinking, oh yes, this is right, this is the way it's supposed to be, and this is what I have to have in order to be happy for the rest of my life, we will suffer when that thing ends. So that's the suffering of change. And then there's the even subtler suffering of just life, of existence, that is associated with or recognized um, in the neutral experience, just that we, you know, we have to kind of churn through day to day, live our lives, take care of our homes, take care of our cars, take care of our families, buy the food, earn the money to buy the food so that we can cook it, so that we can eat it, so that we're not hungry, so that we can go to work, so that, you know, it's it's on and on. Just the taking care of existence. And if we didn't do that, we'd really suffer, you know. Stop stop feeding yourself and you really suffer. Stop cleaning your dishes. It gets pretty messy in the kitchen. So um, there's a kind of a dukkha, just a kind of a, a dukkha around just taking care of ourselves. That it's just kind of a, um, it's a little bit burdensome. And we, we notice that, I think. You know, there's a kind of a, I, I like to think of this third kind of dukkha, this dukkha of existence to be, I think I said this last week, the, the, the um, Buddhist version of existential anxiety. You know, it's like, is this all there is? You know, I think we kind of, we recognize this burdensomeness of existence and it's like, well, what is the point of all of this just doing, doing, doing to, you know, take care of myself until I die? What's the point of this? And so that's kind of, um, I think that existential anxiety is kind of an intuitive recognition of this suffering of, of the existence That's a little summary <laughs> of what I've talked about for the last few weeks. And today I'd like to continue this exploration. Um, there's actually two more topics that I'm going to cover on the First Noble Truth. I think this is going to make a five-week <laughs> five discussion of the First Noble Truth. But you know, hey, this is like, this is, this is what the entire of the Buddhist teachings is centered around. You know, he said, all I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. So... It's actually a pretty big topic. So um, I think the first, the first day I read a definition from the suttas of um, the first noble truth. And I'll read it here again. And it was the, it's the, last, the last term uh, in this that I want to cover. And what, friends, is the noble truth of suffering? Birth is suffering. 
Aging is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Not to obtain what one wants is suffering. In short, the five aggregates affected by clinging are suffering. And I think Mary asked, what are the five aggregates that first day? And I said, well, let's wait on that. So I'm going to talk about that today. What, this, what are these five aggregates and what is this? What does this mean, the five aggregates of clinging or suffering? That sounds like an obscure thing. You know, five aggregates. What are aggregates anyway? Um, that term, aggregate, is a translation of a polyterm, kanda. And that term, kanda, is a, you know, it's a really ordinary term in, in um, Nepali. You know, you, you talk about carrying a, uh, a kanda of sticks around. You know, so it's just, you know, it would be, it would be used in a, kind of an ordinary way. And what does it mean? Kanda basically means stuff made of other stuff. You know, so a kanda of sticks or a, you know, a kanda of bricks, you know, piled on the ground or... Um, you know, it's just, it's, it, the pile is a kanda. It's a pile is made of other stuff. The bundle of sticks is a kanda. It's made of other stuff. So actually, you know, the term aggregate isn't one that we use very much in our, in our English language, but it's actually a relatively good translation of this term. Um, because the, you know, aggregate, you know, if you think about Aggregate stone, that's the main way that I've heard of this term, right? Aggregate rock or something like that. It's a rock made of other rocks. Um, so it's a, it's a relatively good translation of that, the, this sense of something being made of other things. And then the other part of this, um, I'm not as sure in, in the Pali that, that the, uh, the term kanda is also used in a, the way of putting together. It may be. I'm not sure. You know, so there's, there's, the, there's the thing that's made of other things, and then there's the doing of the putting together of that thing. And uh, aggregate can be used in both ways. You know, aggregate can be used as both a noun, the thing, and the verb. You can aggregate things. Um, and the... Uh, I'm not sure if the Pali is used in that way, but I do know that the way that it's used in the Buddhist sense, in this term of the khandas of our experience, that um, it's looked at both from the side of the sort of things <laughs> that are here, you know, the, the body as a, as a khanda, Bodies, you know, something that's made of other things. You know, it's made of, it's made of, you know, muscles and bones and uh, blood and nerves and all that stuff. So this body here is made of other things. And then um, the way it's understood too is that um, these khandas, these aggregates, are processes. So it's both the the, the result of the process and the process itself that are referred to by this term. And so the five aggregates, just to keep you out of suspense, <laughs> the five aggregates um, in our experience are the body. They are, uh, and so there's one bodily. And then the other four have to do with the mind. They're processes in the mind. 
or experiences in the mind. They are um, the process of feeling, feeling whether something's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Not not emotion in that sense, but but feeling um, just a kind of rudimentary, bare kind of feeling, whether something's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Then there is the process of perception, the process by which we recognize things. And this is um, this has many layers to it. So we recognize things at a really bare level. You know, just what we see, what comes into our eyes and is mapped onto the back of our retina is form and color. And then that all gets interpreted into chair, wall, floor, carpet, man, woman, sign, that kind of thing. And then it even gets interpreted further. I mean, like if we look at this thing, I mean, the the bare thing is kind of square brown, right? I mean, it's just pretty bare. And then, and then the, the, uh, so square and brown are perceptions. But then there are perceptions built on top of that. Book is a perception. And it comes because we recognize book. You know, we, we've seen a lot of these things and we've been given a name for it. This is a book. And so that's a perception also. So these, that perception book is built on top of recognizing other things about this. The squareness, the roundness, the brownness, the, 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 you know, the look of it. You know, the way it's got something on the edges and then things that look thin stacked together in the middle. We recognize this as book. And then on top of that, some of you may recognize this as the book of the Buddhist teachings. And that again, that's a perception. It would come from recognition. So this perceptual process is a process that um, functions in our mind kind of almost automatically. It's, it's a way that, as human beings, we navigate the world. Kind of these shortcuts of recognizing things. So we don't have to put, put things together every time. So this process, the Buddha recognized this process, uh, a perceptual process. So this is the process around which we recognize things, very closely connected with memory. Is there anything else I want to say about that in this moment? I think I'll wait. Okay, so body, feeling, perception. Then there is um, knowing, the mind's capacity to know things. Just, just the kind of bare, you know, you know that there's sight coming in through the eye. You know that there's bodily sensation happening. You know that there's hearing happening. Now again, this is a process and it is something that we can recognize as something happening in the moment. There's the process that happens in our, in our minds by which we know things. Now these, these three um, khandas, these three aggregates, feeling, perception, and knowing, kind of make up the really bare elemental experience and processes of our minds. And these, these, kinds of, these things, feeling, perception, and knowing, the fact that things are pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, the fact that we recognize things, and the fact that we know that we're having experience, they are all um, you know, just kind of happening all the time. Now these three, they're kind of hard to tease apart. Um, they're not 
And, and the Buddha actually recognized this. He said, you know, you can't really tease these three, three apart and, and describe one apart from the other. They're really intertwined. But they are different processes in a way. They, they point to different functions of our mind. And uh, the Buddha actually recognized it's helpful to recognize that there's these different processes in our minds, partly because of the way we tend to identify with these processes. We identify, I mean, we can, we can identify, and I haven't talked about the last one yet, but I will get there. We can identify with the body. You know, the body is a process. And we can identify with the body, take it to be mine, take it to be me, um, want it to be certain ways, want to try to control it, want to try to change it. Uh, we can identify with our feelings of whether something's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral and feel like this has to change, or this is good, or this is bad. So there can be an identification around that. We can identify with what we recognize. Um, and this, this one, you know, um, this one's really interesting. I, I don't know, let's see, how do I want to say this right now? Um, maybe I'll hold off on that <laughs> just for a second, because I want to get to that fifth one. And there's a kind of loop, a feedback loop between that fifth one and this perception. Um, we can identify with just the bare aspect of knowing, of being a being that's knowing. Now that one can be pretty subtle. You know, that one actually is, we start to see that as we settle down more. Now this fifth one, the fifth aggregate, is the aggregate of pretty much everything else. But it includes um, all of those functions of mind that happen because we intend to do things. So this includes, um, you know, all of what we normally think of as emotions, anger, frustration, happiness, love. It includes all kinds of processes that we do with our minds, like mindfulness. It includes concentration. It includes um, investigation, curiosity, it's, it's everything that we do with our minds that uh, has some kind of doing or intentionality behind it. Now, this intentionality doesn't need to be conscious. It doesn't need to be something that we're aware of. It, it can be coming from a kind of a subconscious um, thing. And so this, this last one, this is really, this is where the dukkha comes in, in this last one. It's also where the possibility of moving away from dukkha comes in. It's also where, you know, we can cultivate qualities of mind. We can intend to cultivate mindfulness. We can intend to cultivate kindness. We can tend to, intend to cultivate generosity. All of these qualities are found in this fifth aggregate. This fifth aggregate is sometimes called intentional formation or volitional formation, sometimes just formations. This one is kind of where the whole process of life unfolds, this doingness that we, you know, we do things. And it's because we do things that we then subsequently experience feeling, perception, and knowing that we've done things. So it's kind of this, this loop between these, these guys. So this, um, this uh, process of um, doing things, of you know, choosing, that, that, you know, that this is kind of where the, um, we launch out of the present moment, 
like I said, there's this feedback loop. The present moment basically consists of, you know, in the bareness of it, it consists of some, you know, the body and something we're feeling, something we're perceiving, something we're knowing, and some kind of response to that. So that's all five aggregates right in the present moment. And it's that response to the present moment where we either head ourselves towards suffering or head ourselves towards happiness. So if that response has a tinge of greed, aversion, or delusion, we're going to head ourselves in the direction of suffering. If we're acting out of greed, aversion, or delusion, taking that action, that action begins to form, it's a a volitional formation, that action begins to form our subsequent experience. If we choose to act out of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, that action begins to form more happiness. So the, the, the going back to the perception, the way we identify with um, perception, um, you know, this tight feedback loop between what we do, not only what we do, but also what we believe, what our ideas are, those things fall under this fourth volitional, volitional formation. Uh, our beliefs, our ideas, our views tend to um, create this kind of filter in our experience. And that, that filter then um, is, we're looking through that filter and then we see, we recognize certain things. Perhaps certain things that uh, correspond to that filter. We you know, tend to screen out things in the environment that don't correspond to that filter. Or um, uh, we tend to uh, maybe have an idea in mind of something we're doing and then we tend to pick up on things that are in line with that doing. So I'll give you an example of this. I think I've told this uh, in this room before, but some of you may not have heard it. So there's a a study done, a research study about um, kind of attention and how attention uh, works. And so this research study, they asked people to watch a video and they asked people to, there, were, there was a basketball team on the video, two basketball teams on the video, one in white shirts and one in black shirts. And they asked the, uh, the people to watch the people in the white shirts and count how many times they passed the basketball between them. And so that was their task. And then at the end of that video, they asked, okay, so did you notice, okay, how, many bas- how many basketball passes did you count, and did you notice anything unusual? And most people said, no. Um, some people might have said, was, was there like a gorilla in there somewhere? Or <laughs> and in fact, on the video, um, uh, there had been, while these basketballs were being passed, a Guy in a gorilla suit walks out onto the basketball court and dances around a little bit, you know, makes himself pretty obvious, you know, beats his chest, whatever gorillas do. And um, the people who were watching the white shirt did not see this gorilla. And in fact, when they were played the video back, they were so convinced that it could not be the same video. You know, it, it, this, this, you've shown me another video. Because they were so... Um, convinced that they would have noticed it. 
So the purpose of what they were doing, looking at the people in the white shirts, filtered their capacity, filtered what they saw, so much so that they denied that it was even the same video when they were played it back. Now, somebody told me that they tried this experiment too with um, you know, having them look at the people in the black shirts. And they would see the gorilla because it's more close in, you know, in terms of what they were looking for. You know, that the, the, the gorilla was in a dark colored suit and the basketball players in the brown, in the dark shirts, they then would notice the gorilla. So, you know, the, the kind of attentional um, screening here was that they were focused on white. And they were focused on white. Look at the white. Ignore everything else. So that, that's a way in which our intentions can change our perception. And this kind of thing actually happens to us a lot. It happens to us a lot. And I love this, uh, this study to really prove to us, you know, just how, how easy it is for this kind of thing to happen. We screen things out based on our intention for attention. We also screen things out based on our views, our beliefs. Um, okay, so that's a kind of a summary of the five aggregates. They are both, you know, the five aggregates can be looked at both as the, you know, the, the experience of these things, the experience of the body, the experience of feeling, the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, the experience of a perception, a recognition of book or um, chair or person can be seen as the recognition of that. Um, so we can recognize these things as happening to us. We can recognize that we know things. We can recognize that we're experiencing a particular emotion or um, we're, we're recognizing, we can recognize that there's a particular intention to do something. And we can also see these things as processes, as ways that things are put together, kind of in that way that I was talking about, the looping between the, the intentional formations and the perception. So that, um, that the body can be seen as a process. This uh, recognition of feeling can be seen as a process that the mind does. Not separate from the fact that in this moment I'm experiencing pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There's a process by which the mind does that. Likewise, there's you know, apart from the fact that in this moment I'm recognizing man, woman, chair, wall, there's a process in the mind that does that. So that, the, that the, the, these five aggregates represent both the process and the things that are um, recognized or known or experienced. Now, the understanding is that everything that we experience, everything absolutely everything falls somehow into one of these five bundles, five heaps, five aggregates. So there's nothing that we experience that is not somewhere in this domain. So basically we can look at this process of the aggregates as describing what does it mean to be human? And kind of 
with a particular flavor on that, you know, that the Buddha actually saw, okay, you know, you, you can divide up this being human in lots of different ways. I mean, one of the differences in, in terms of how Westerns, Westerners, Western psychology divides it up, that the Buddha doesn't divide it up, is that we tend to think of uh, emotion, emotion as a category by which we divide up experience. You know, we think of, you know, love and anger and frustration as being a kind of a, a process or thing in the mind that's perhaps separate from something like, you know, we wouldn't necessarily call um, mindfulness an emotion. Or we wouldn't call concentration an emotion. But the Buddha lumps these together because his interest is in the intentionality behind these things. So there's different ways to divide it up. And he's just saying, this is a helpful way to think about this. It's not like this is some, you know, um, reality. This is a, this is a, I mean, there, there is reality in that. You know, there's reality in the experience of the moment. But these dividings are just convenient. And they are helpful dividings. In, the, in terms of what the Buddha is trying to, to help us do, to see how we suffer. So everything in our experience falls into one of these categories. And so what does it mean when the Buddha says the five aggregates of clinging are suffering? It kind of sounds like everything we experience is suffering. So what, what, I mean, that, and that seems to be patently wrong, you know? It's like, it's just, what does that mean? So the first piece to, to check into here is to um, recognize that he says the five aggregates of clinging are suffering. And so these experiences, everything in our experience, when clung to, when we kind of try to freeze frame our experience and say, oh, okay, stop it here, or we try to hold on to some aspect of experience or control or manipulate our experience, we will suffer. So it's the clinging aspect um, that brings the suffering. Now this kind of comes back to what I was talking about last week, because, you know, every moment of experience, you know, in this feeling aggregate is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. No moment of experience is not going to be one of those three. And last week, talking about how we cling, how we suffer around pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, that, that kind of points to, you know, how anything, anything that we experience can be the, the ground for suffering if we are reacting to it, if we are trying to, um, um, if, we're, if we're reacting to it out of greed, aversion, or delusion, we will suffer. If we're responding to it, if we're responding to it out of compassion, out of kindness, in mindfulness, um, with generosity, then the, the um, that, you know, battleship of these aggregates kind of begins to head in another direction so that we can become free of suffering. So it's the clinging. It's really the clinging that is the, uh, 
And the clinging itself, you know, the clinging itself is in this last aggregate. The clinging is a process in our minds. So that's, it's, it's got an intentional quality to it. And often, you know, it's not something that we are thinking, oh yes, I'm going to cling, but it's just the way we've been doing things for so long that it happens. And so the mindfulness can begin to come in and let us see where we are clinging. The mindfulness begins to um, loosen the stickiness of the clinging, I guess, is a way we could put it. So that, um, you know, it's like the glue gets weaker and weaker and finally the glue just dissolves. It's like that mindfulness is this great solvent for that stickiness of clinging. So there's one other piece I want to mention uh, today and then I want to open it up for discussion. This is really the briefest of overviews of the aggregates. I've done whole, you know, five-week series on these five aggregates. They're so they're very interesting way to explore our experience and you know, the Buddha looks at different ways that we, you know, I think the reason why he put these into these five categories is because the the tendency to cling and identify and coalesce happens around these processes. The the process of the body, we tend to aggregate and coalesce around that uh, as a self. uh, We tend to coalesce around our feelings, our perceptions, our uh, consciousness and our intentions. So he pointed to this as a, a way that we can begin to see how we form this identity, how we begin to identify identification, this process of identification. So this other this other piece I want to bring in here to kind of point to um, this understanding of these five aggregates being. Dukkha. Because in, in this first noble truth, he says the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. Um, and so that's pretty clear. It's around the reactivity, the wanting to hold on or push away, that we suffer around these processes. But there are other places in the, in the suttas where he says something like that in the deepest kind of understanding, we see that all that's arising is dukkha. And all that's ending is dukkha, moment to moment. Everything that's happening, that's arising and passing away is dukkha. Now, that use of the term dukkha has a slightly different meaning to it. Because um, if you just think of, if you think about, you know, there's the Buddha who was fully awakened and in that being fully awakened, is said he experienced no mental pain or grief. No more of this first noble truth of dukkha. It completely ceased for him. And yet he still had a body, right? He still had these five aggregates happening. These processes were still happening for him. And yet he was not experiencing the the dukkha of the first noble truth around them. And yet... He describes the understanding that he knows moment to moment is everything that arises is dukkha, everything that ceases is dukkha. So what does this mean? So this points to a different way that this term is used in the texts. Um, There's another um, 
another way that the Buddha describes all experience as kind of having these three kind of characteristics or three um, characteristics is as good as word of any is any um, um, that every experience that we have you know there's all the differences that come out of the the way that we perceive things and recognize things through these five aggregates you know there's the feeling of it there's the perception of it there's the emotion around it everything that we experience can kind of be discerned and distinguished into different things you know into what we might call uh, specific characteristics, you know, the characteristic of weight and heaviness of this book and the characteristic of color and form of this book. Those are the specifics of that experience. Every experience has specifics to it. You know, the breath has specific, you know, feelings of pressure and vibration and fullness. The um, you know, sight has specifics around form and color. So there's the specifics of experience, and that's actually mostly what we pay attention to. You know, we, we notice the specifics. That's how we navigate our lives is by connecting in with the specifics. Okay, here's a car. I need to be careful about that car as I walk across the road. So there's the, the specifics of our experience. The Buddha said, in addition to those specifics, there's some general characteristics of experience that every single experience has in common. And these three characteristics are Everything that we experience is impermanent. Everything that we experience is suffering. And this is where I'll talk about what this term suffering means here. Everything that we experience is suffering. And everything that we experience is not self. So impermanence is pretty easy to recognize. I mean, if it, you know, we can, even through some reflection, recognize that our experience changes. It's not particularly a surprise that our experience changes. But it's interesting to to check in and see um, where is it that we are kind of imputing a permanence to things? Because when we impute permanence to things, we do suffer. So it's kind of, you know, what, what, what the Buddha is saying here is that there are these three characteristics of experience of all experience, and essentially he, he, he identifies that, there, that our main delusion around experience revolves around these three characteristics, that we impute permanence to things. And when we impute permanence to things, we suffer because pff, they're not permanent. We're going against the kind of nature of reality. Then uh, dukkha, what does it mean when he says everything has this characteristic of dukkha? What he means by that is that it's inherently unreliable as a place where we can be happy. So it's not that that thing itself as experienced is inherently a feeling of suffering, but it's inherently unreliable. It is not a place, anything that we experience, everything that we experience, cannot be uh, considered as a reliable place where we could say, yes, this is what's going to make me happy. So that's what this characteristic of dukkha means, the unreliability of experience. So from that standpoint, there's nothing in this stream of the changing flow of experience that we can say, yep, that, that's what's going to do it for me. And so from that standpoint, everything is unreliable. Everything is dukkha. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we suffer, that we have the feeling of dukkha. The first noble truth is talking about the experience of the, uh, you know, the, um, I don't know what the right word is, the, I guess the psychological experience of suffering. And this characteristic is talking more about the kind of, just the nature of experience. You know, it's unreliable because it changes. There's nothing that is permanent. Therefore, everything is unreliable as being a lasting source of happiness. Then um, this, this third characteristic of not-self, um, I think I'll talk about that more when I talk about the, the third noble truth, but I'll just briefly mention here. Um, this is basically beginning to recognize that there's nothing that we can call in our experience I or me or mind. In fact, this, this, um, this notion of I, this notion that I am, is in that fifth aggregate. It's a mental formation. It's an idea. It's a belief. It's a view. And there's a kind of feeling around it. I mean, we, we have a feeling that I am. But if you begin to observe this what you are taking to be me, you'll begin to notice that it changes. It's not very stable. We impute a stability to it. So what we call I is kind of a mistaken interpretation of a process. It's not that there's nothing there. There is a process there. There's a kind of continuity there. There's a flow of experience that kind of congeals together, kind of like a river, congeals, you know, that there's a flow of direction of that river. But what do you call the river? I mean, is the river the water in the river? Well, that water's continually changing. You can't take a bucket of water out of that river and say, this is the river. If that, you know, you can't say the riverbed is the river. It's, you know, if the water weren't in the river, you wouldn't call it a river anymore. So what is the river? You know, it's a process. It's a, you know, even that riverbed will change depending on when it floods, you know, it may carve a new groove, you know. So our lives are kind of like a river. And what we call self, what we identify as, oh, there's a thing here, that's, a, that's the misunderstanding. That there is a kind of a, you know, some little entity sitting inside that is stable, permanent, unchanging, if you just look at your experience, you will see that what you call self changes. And so if you can see this selfing as a process, that's kind of a beginning to understand this third characteristic. So mostly I wanted to, um, to just give you this other definition of this characteristic of dukkha um, to help kind of tease apart you know, when people say, you know, but the Buddha said everything is suffering, you can begin to understand what he was meaning by that. You know, everything is dukkha, everything is unreliable. There is nothing reliable in experience as a place for happiness. It's the letting go that allows us to um, experience a happiness. So I think I'm going to stop there. Um, like I said, I have one more topic I'll cover next week about this first noble truth, but let's just see what, what kind of thoughts or 
this has inspired in in you guys. Yeah. Uh, the last thing about everything is unreliable was very helpful. I just want to say that. You asked during the meditation uh, something. This, I think, is, fits in the, category, the fourth category of knowing, I think. You asked, how do you know you're breathing? Uh-huh. uh-huh. That was very puzzling to me. <laughs> <laughs> It, there is there, that does kind of fit into the category of the knowing, and it is it, you know the knowing itself is a it's a very subtle experience. Um, although you know it begins to be clear, it's kind of like um, it's it's like we don't see the knowing so directly; we see it through the recognition of things. So, you know, one of my teachers gives this example. He said, you know, I've been trying to figure out a way to describe to people what this awareness or, of a knowing is or what's this awareness of awareness. And he said, several of you wear glasses, so you can, you know, think of this. He says, um, um, you know, the whole way you see the world, is through, if you wear glasses, is through the glasses, you know, but you're not normally aware of the glasses themselves. But you can kind of have a sense, you know, you take your glasses off, you see the difference, right? Um, you kind of have a sense of what it means to look through glasses. Or those of you who don't wear glasses, think about a window. You know, the, you, can, you can kind of have a sense of what it means to look through a window um, and know the glass is there. You can kind of see the glass or recognize the glass in terms of what it does to what you're seeing, in a way, so kind of in a similar way, you can begin to recognize the knowing. But it's it, it's mostly known through the way we experience things. Um, so it to, to, you know it, it 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 can take some time to get familiar with that feeling of knowing. Um, but in terms of the how do you know you're breathing? Partly, what I was pointing to was what is the experience that. Um, indicates the breathing is happening. So, you know, sometimes we, we um, you know, we know we're breathing, but we're not feeling anything. We just kind of, it's an idea. But then there is the experience that we can know, you know, the, the sensation in the nostrils, the sensation in the throat. And so there's, in every experience, and this, again, points to the aggregates, there is both the experience and the knowing of it. So, you know, here's, here's another way to kind of begin to point to this knowing. So, you know, right now, um, pay attention to the experience of your um, buttocks touching the chair cushion. Just, you know, feeling, feeling that. Um, what is it that allows you to know those sensations? There's a knowing quality that allows you to know them. Now, put your attention in the sensations of your lips touching. Were you aware of that before I asked you to pay attention to it? So that's a kind of a pointer to that quality of knowing. You know, that it's... 
there's, there's a kind of, there, the, the knowing itself doesn't have the intentionality. Attention is what I was pointing to there, but they're, they're closely connected, uh, attention and the knowing. So, you know, the, unless you've got the attention there, you're not going to feel the sensations. It's not that the, the feelings aren't there, but the attention and the knowing come together. So with every experience, there is both the, the, the physicality, I mean, with every physical experience, let's just keep it at the realm of physical right now. With every physical experience, there is the physicality that's happening. But if the attention isn't there, if the mindfulness, if the attention isn't there, the knowing is not going to be there for it. So with every experience that we have, there's both. With every experience that we experience, let's say, both the experience and the knowing are present. And we can begin to, um, you know, recognize what, is the, what are the qualities of the experience. And this kind of points to that specific, specificness of experience. Well, both, actually. It points to both. I mean, there's the, you know, the specific qualities of uh, the pressure of your buttocks and the, you know, the heaviness of your body and the tingling or pressure, light pressure on your lips. Those are specific characteristics. And then we can begin to recognize that they're changing. You know, so we can begin to recognize the impermanence of them. Um, and we can also, you know, so we can, we can look at our experience through this, kind of emphasize the, what we are knowing. And we can also begin to recognize that we are knowing. That begins to point us to that fourth aggregate of knowing. Does that help at all? The, the m- melding together of attention helps me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, Bill and then, what's your name oh, again? Mary. Mary, okay. Um, could you describe very briefly some way in which the, f- the uh, for you, the impermanence of the first noble truth has been experienced? Oh, goodness. Okay, let's see. Um, um, I think, you know, I've told this story before, but it's kind of the first one that pops into my mind. Um, it's, it, it's the impermanence of experience and how that connects to suffering. Um, let's see. So that's the clinging. Let me think. Um, want to come up with a clear example. The other one that I was thinking about feels more like it's a description of the second noble truth. So (laughs) (laughs) I want to find a clear one on the first noble truth. Um, Well, I mean, just just in so many ways, um, um, you know, the, the when we're holding on to something And not wanting it to change. Can I bring this up? Okay, here's one. It's kind of subtle. (laughs) Um, So I was observing um, 
I was observing some phenomenon in my mind that was a very familiar one, you know. Oh, look at that again. <laughs> I can't even remember what it was at this point. Um, some kind of habitual pattern. I was noticing that. And when I noticed it, there was, um, in the noticing of it, there was the recognition of, um, okay, yep, there's that pattern. You know, so there was a little bit of space around it. And so there wasn't so much suffering around it because the mindfulness came in and um, gave it some space. And then there was some amusement that arose. You know, I, you've, you, many of you have probably experienced this when you look at your mind over and over again and see it just doing the same thing, you know, over and over again. When the mindfulness can come in, there can be some amusement there. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, look at that, <laughs> you know. And so there was the amusement there. And um, in this particular case, I was on a long retreat. It was a three-month retreat. And at that point, it was pretty far into the retreat, probably eight weeks, ten weeks into the retreat. And I noticed the amusement coming up. And so I noticed it as just a phenomenon arising, this amusement. And when I noticed that amusement, the entire pattern, not the amusement disappeared, and the entire pattern of that whatever that habit was, disappeared. It was almost as if, you know, so the, the, I had this habit in a way of being mindful of something. Right? So I was looking at something and then that created the space around it, and then I could be amused by that. And then in seeing the amusement, I saw in a way how that amusement was holding, like creating a, a thing out of it. And seeing the amusement just turned the whole thing into process and it all just fell apart in a split second it's like the amusement disappeared and whatever that thing was that I was amused about just vanished and I don't know if any of you um, you know in longer retreat it can happen that when things vanish that quickly they are so gone you can't even remember what they were So that's that's a kind that's one example, but it can happen in so many ways. I mean, in your own experience, I think you've experienced this. I mean, you've talked about you know the the anger around um, you know certain activities and how when you you know begin to recognize you know basically it's a kind of a holding to you know I'm right I'm um, yeah I was trying to ask a different question, but I'm going to let. Someone else okay. go, and then I'll okay. talk with you individually okay. later. Oh, and it's time to stop. Let's make this one really quick. <laughs> um, um, well, um, maybe I'm not getting the whole message because I, when you got to the um, uh, the idea of uh, knowing that I'm I'm in process, which I I know that you know I know that I'm in process. It seems extremely optimistic to me <laughs> because um, you can't hang on to anything. Indeed. Uh, and, <laughs> and so um, even things that are comfortable to hang on to, you can't, you can't really hang on to them. So all the baggage and stuff is in process. So I, I ended up feeling 
with the suffering, I felt very, very optimistic. I'm, <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> I mean, that's actually the point. I mean, we think suffering is something, you know, miserable, but actually it's the understanding. This is what I'm going to talk about next week. The Buddha said suffering should be understood. And that's where the optimism comes in. Oh, because okay. as we begin to understand it, we see how we can be free of it. Mm-hmm. And we see, oh, I can't cling to anything. But we see also that we try. Oh, yeah. And that, we, yeah. ooh, we really suffer when we yeah, try. really suffer. Yeah, yeah. yeah but it, it is basically an optimistic message. I'm so happy that you know. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> I thought there, there must be a book here, I'm talking about, I've been talking about dukkha for four weeks. I mean, are the people going to get depressed about this? <laughs> no, you found the optimism. Oh. I'm so happy. <laughs> Just one little thing regarding what you, you said about how do I know I'm breathing. And uh, we had uh, a big family reunion. And uh, I'm not much of a swimmer. We have a pool, but I hardly ever go in. But I wanted to go in with the grandkids. They were all doing that. Then suddenly they were diving off the board and, you know, doing all these things. And I was realizing, hey, I'm going under because I, I wasn't treading water anymore. Uh-huh. And uh, one of my uh, granddaughters sort of noticed that, you know, and sort of put her hand out. But that was a very vivid realization of uh, breath. <laughs> you know, something I, something I had taken for granted. But when I realized, I can't breathe. Uh, if I go under again. <laughs> but she saw it, and she didn't make anything about it. She just uh-huh. sort of, uh-huh. you know, gave me enough support so that I... But for years, I haven't had any experience of breathing, you know, just breathing, you know, take it for granted. <laughs> and now you do. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we need to stop. So thank you all.